All right, we're in uh, Luke chapter 21. Boy, we're getting really close to finishing here after three and a half years. And so we're going to look at uh, verses 5 through 11. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 5 through 7 just to kind of get it in our minds what's going on here. So in Luke 21, starting in verse 5, we read... And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass. Father in heaven, we come to now, to now to you, Lord, and as we begin to look at this passage, uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us, Father, to see what you would have us to see, not only what Jesus is actually saying, but also, Father, how it may apply to our lives, and, and as we look at the events of this world, my goodness, uh, how appropriate what we're getting ready to look at is for us even, uh, in our day. As we know, Lord, that we're getting very, very close to where we're going to hear that trumpet, and uh, we're going to be joined with our Lord uh, in, 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 with, to be with him forever. And we're, we're looking forward to that day. But up to that time, Father, um, I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us, help us, prepare us uh, as we see these, these things come to pass before our very eyes. We thank you and praise you that you are indeed sitting upon the throne, that you are indeed sovereign and in control, and that we can trust in you like the rock that the, the psalmist speaks of. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the companion passage to Luke chapter 21 uh, you can find in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, though um, Luke doesn't say so here in uh, his gospel, but if you look at uh, Matthew's account, uh, he's telling us that uh, as they're leaving the temple, okay, they're leaving the temple, they're, uh, they're uh, getting ready to, to, to go to some other place. I think it's the Mount of Olives. But as they leave the temple, the disciples are... Uh, commenting on the architecture of the uh, edifice that Herod had built. And they're talking about the temple, and, and Herod's temple, as it's called in the history books and stuff, it was indeed an archi- architectural wonder of the, do- uh, of the day. Uh, but of course, in comparison with Solomon's temple, uh, there really is no, there really was no uh, comparison at all, but it was a very impressive structure. And I you guys know this, but the the, the temple uh, was the center of religious life. It was the center of social life. It was it was uh, the capstone of their culture. In fact, the Jews took a a national pride about their temple because the temple was where God had would meet with His people. All right, so it was a very uh, important structure as far as uh, the Jews were con- were concerned, and just as God had met with Moses in the tabernacle in in the wilderness, um, the Jews, you know, had the same idea about the temple. In fact, they remember their biblical history because uh, in their biblical history, when Solomon had built his temple, uh, a magnificent. 
thing happened, right? Uh, when Solomon was done building the temple and the priests had uh, taken the ark and, and placed it in the Holy of Holies, what took place? What happened? Well, the Shekinah glory of God descended upon the temple, didn't it? And filled it with, with smoke, so much so that it, it drove the priests out of the holy place. First Kings 8, uh, 10 through 11, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So they remember that wonderful event that took place when Solomon was finished uh, with the temple and they put the ark in the holy of holies. But uh, the glory of God would not reside on the temple for very long because in uh, the book of Ezekiel uh, the glory of the Lord is seen departing from the Holy of Holies and departing from the temple and departing from the city and departing uh, from the land. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10 through 11 as Ezekiel along with the other people who were taken into captivity in Babylon that God had given Ezekiel this vision because the people were wondering what what happened, what's going on. And so Ezekiel is explaining to them, well, the reason why is because of your sin and rebellion and because of that the glory of the Lord has departed from you all right so because of their sin and rebellion the glory of the lord departed from the temple and departed from the land but good news uh a little bit over 70 years later uh the jews were given permission to go back into the land go back to jerusalem and under the leadership of zerubbabel and ezra they rebuilt the the, the temple Right? They rebuilt the temple. Uh, but the thing with this second temple, um, it didn't have the former glory if you will, that Solomon's temple had. If you read about Solomon's temple, that was quite an edifice. What Solomon put together, I mean, it was covered in gold and had bronze. I mean, it was quite a quite a structure. But uh, so they built this this second temple temple. And after it was completed, uh, there was a mixture of sadness and gladness among the people. There was gladness among uh, the people because they finally got it built. They've got a place now where uh, they can uh, come and worship and offer the sacrifices. But there were also some older folks who were sad. They lamented. And why is that? Because some of these older folks remembered the temple of Solomon before it was destroyed, before Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and, and knocked it down. So they remembered that former temple. And so they lamented because the, the, the second temple <laughs> didn't quite measure up. And so they were sad. They were sad. Well, God sent a prophet by the name of Haggai. And uh, Haggai chapter 2 uh, God sent uh, this prophet to these people to encourage them. And so if you, if you want to, you can turn to Haggai chapter 2. And this is uh, the prophet sent from God trying uh, to encourage the people in regards to this second temple because there was something very special about this second temple. And this is what God wanted these folks to understand. In Haggai chapter 2 and verse 2, uh, God says to Haggai, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
uh, the high priest and to the residue of the people saying, Who is left among you that saw this house and her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? And that's what was going on. I mean, they remembered the old temple and they were sad because the second temple just didn't measure up. Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. You see, that was some of the things that they were, they were sad about. They were thinking, you know, the glory of the Lord had departed. God's no longer with us. Look at this, this temple in comparison to Solomon's temple. God's assuring them, no, no, it's not about the building. I'm still with you. And then he goes on. In verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. That's a promise that he gave these people. You see, this second temple um, that the prophet Haggai is talking about even though in appearance it may not have measured up to what Solomon had built but yet God through his prophet Haggai is telling him is telling his people that there's going to be something about this second temple that's going to be more glorious than the temple that Solomon built and that was fulfilled 500 years later because who showed up? The Lord Jesus Christ. The desire of nations. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ came and he arrived upon the scene and he walked into this temple. Right? Remember in, in, in Solomon's day when the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple? Well, the glory of the Lord came again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Haggai had promised was fulfilled with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that second temple was blessed because of Christ coming into that temple. Now, when Herod the Great was put into power by Rome, uh, he took this second temple and he went through a, a, a restoration project. And what he did was he took this second temple and he made it into the edifice that these disciples were now talking about. And the reason why he did this was not because Herod was a religious man, but Herod did this to try to win the favor of the Jews politically. Because the Jews did not want Herod to rule over them, but what could they do? Rome was behind Herod. So in order to try to win or placate the people, uh, Herod built this, this second temple up into the edifice that these, these disciples of Jesus uh, were admiring, were admiring. Now, I relate to this history about the temple because there's a point to this thing. Uh, these disciples, now think about it, these disciples were leaving the temple with the Lord Jesus Christ and they were commenting about how beautiful it was and, and look at the stones because Herod used um, these expensive white stones. 
So when the sun shone on this temple, it was brilliant. I mean, you could see it for miles. You could see it for miles. It was a brilliant building. And so they were commenting how it was built of these goodly stones and, and how it was or, or adorned and all this kind of stuff. So they were really kind of bragging on the building. But the Jews and his disciples had missed what Haggai had prophesied. You see what they were focusing on? They were focusing on the glory of the temple. And what they failed to see was that the glory of the temple was walking right beside them. Don't we do the same thing? We fixate on the wrong thing sometimes. We fixate on the wrong thing sometimes. We fixate on a building when we should be fixating on Christ. So we sometimes get out of whack in what we fixate on. And so these guys missed also the same thing the Jews missed, that the true glory of this temple was not the goodly stone, but it was the rock, (laughs) the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the desire of all nations, that was now, according to Matthew, exiting the temple. Exiting the temple. Now Jesus would come back and teach the people, but as far as the Jews were concerned, the leadership was concerned, Jesus was done. He had tried and he had tried and they continually refused and they continually resisted him. Jesus was done with the leadership. Don't miss the picture here. Just like in Ezekiel's vision long ago when the glory of the Lord was leaving the temple and leaving the land because of the sin and rebellion of the people, the glory of the Lord and Jesus Christ was doing the same because of the Rebellion and rejection of the leadership. That's what was going on. That's what was going on. And in 40 short years, from this point, 40 short years, that temple would be destroyed. The city would be destroyed. And God's people would once again be dispersed among the nations. So don't miss what's going on here. Don't miss what's going on here. Now what Jesus says about this temple that these men were admiring, that this there wouldn't be a stone upon a stone on this magnificent structure. This was hard for these guys to to understand. It was hard for them to believe. It was hard for them to to fathom. I remember going on a discipleship trip years ago. It was August. And um, it was uh, in New York. And I got to go to the Statue of Liberty. And while I was standing there from the vantage point of the Statue of Liberty, I was looking across, I think that's the Hudson River, And there before me were the Twin Towers. All right? A month before those things come crashing down. Now, if somebody would have told me that in September, 
radicals piloting a, a plane full of people would crash into those towers and bring them, I would think they were crazy. I wouldn't believe it. But that's exactly what happened. And that's the impact that's, that it is having on these men that Jesus is talking to. You see, the importance of this temple cannot be underestimated in the minds of these men or in the minds of the Jews. So when Jesus said this, you know, it kind of set them back on their heels. And that's why they asked this question in verse 7, Master, but when shall these things be and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? This was incredible news. In Matthew's gospel... Now, Matthew's gospel is written to believing Jews. All right, that's Matthew's gospel is tailor-made for for believing Jews. Okay, and in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew, what was it, twenty-four? I said, Matthew presents what Jesus is getting ready to talk about here uh, from the from the perspective of the Jews during that seventieth week of Daniel or what we know of as the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation uh, outlined for us in the book of, of Revelations. Now, do you remember who I said the target audience of Gospels Luke was, or Luke's Gospel was? Gentile believers. Okay, Gentile believers. And so Luke is targeting the Gentile audience, and so Luke records Jesus addressing the same uh, event... But instead, he's including details that Matthew doesn't include. And the details that he includes is the destruction of the temple. He also mentions an interesting phrase, the times of the Gentiles. That's the only time you're going to find that in the Gospels. So that's something to keep in mind. As I taught when we first began our study, the churches had already recognized uh, the Gospel of Luke as inspired and authoritative in the last part of the first century. In fact, um, in, in, in the early second century, uh, early they call them early post-apostolic fathers. In other words, these were preachers and teachers were preaching from the Gospel of Luke toward the end of the first century and into the second century. Uh, folks like uh, Clement of Alexandria, Aranus, Tatian, all those guys, they were preaching and, and teaching from, the, from Luke's gospel already. And so Luke's gospel was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. All right? Also, the book of Acts was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So both Luke... The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were both in existence and being circulated among the churches during this time, before the temple was uh, was uh, destroyed. In fact, um, Paul was under house, house arrest around 63 A.D., and that's where the Book of Acts leaves off. And uh, some folks believe that Paul was um, martyred around 66 A.D., all right, so well before the time that the temple was destroyed. So Luke's gospel was in existence. The book of Acts was in existence before the temple was destroyed. Now, here's the point of what I'm trying to make here is that there would be Gentile believers who would be reading the gospel of Luke before the temple was destroyed, and they would be reading about Jesus saying that temple will be destroyed, and yet while they were reading it, it was still there. Do you understand where I'm coming from? 
So that when it did come to pass, they'd say, hey, that's exactly what Jesus said. It came to pass exactly as Jesus said it would come to pass. Now, how does that apply to us? The majority of the prophecy that's in this book has already come to pass. There's about 10% left. That means 90% of the prophecy that's in this book has come to pass. Now, what does that say about the remaining 10%? It's going to come to pass. In other words, you can believe what this says. Yes? Yes! And so if it's going to come to pass, how should we be living our lives? In expectation and anticipation. In looking and hearing. Watching and praying. Because just as he said it's going to come to pass, it will come to pass. So that should make a practical impact on the way we live our life. It should. Does it? It should. It goes on. These men ask, when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? These things is a key phrase in this portion of Luke's chapter 21. It's mentioned seven times. These things. And so he's talking about these things. And these things that Jesus is talking about is three different things. Okay? Three different things. So I say that because sometimes people try to lump the whole thing into one. And you can't do that. It's three different things that Jesus is talking about. And so we got to do what Paul told Timothy. We need to rightly divide, right? The word of God. One of these things that he talks about applies to two different events that will impact the Jewish people. Uh, The first event is the destruction of Herod's temple. Okay, and we'll look at that. That's already taken place. But we'll look at that as Jesus talks about it. The second event is uh, the conclusion of what Luke calls the times of the Gentiles. And that is that event that we know of as the tribulation period. And we'll look at that. And then there's a third event that impacts those who are the disciples and followers and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have your three different events. One affects the Jews, near future, already fulfilled, far future, yet to be fulfilled. And then the third thing deals with all those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you keep that in mind, if you keep that straight, then you're not going to get lost in the weeds here. 
So, let's take a look at uh, verse 8. Is that all clear? Okay. And he says uh, in verse 8, And I call this a prelude of coming events. In verse 8 he says, And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them, but when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. So Jesus begins to address their questions, and he focuses on three specific conditions that will transpire and on a grand scale as that time draws near uh, that that is when these things uh, start coming to pass all right uh, Jesus gives three specific conditions that will exist and will be global it will overwhelm the earth so we're talking major impact here now the first one is the religious condition that will be on the earth as this time draws nearer and nearer. Now notice Jesus begins with the words, take heed. That means we need to take careful, to be careful observers of events. We need to keep our eyes and our ears open. Uh, we need to weigh carefully matters of importance, uh, things that are going on. So in other words, you know, we don't go to sleep here. We stay alert and we watch this stuff and we balance this stuff out. And I believe that Jesus begins with what is the most important thing that will, that will encompass the earth. And that regards the souls of men. That's the most important thing to Jesus. And so he brings this first thing up. The souls of men, for what he warns about regarding these things, is that there is going to happen something that's going to be a great peril to men's souls. A great peril to men's souls. Jesus warns about deceivers who claim to come in Jesus' name, some even claiming to be Christ, which means the anointed. Uh, Currently, (laughs) there are at least seven men around the world who claim that they are Jesus Christ and have a big following wherever they're at. And... um, from a retired Siberian traffic cop clear to a cross-dressing former British spy there's seven men out there on the earth today claiming to be Jesus Christ the Messiah and they've got a big following wherever they're at in fact one man, a taxi driver in Zambia claims that now he is more senior than Jesus is in, in the hierarchy in heaven all right, so the, there are there are out they're out there. Where are they going to be surprised? Yeah, they are. 
But I'm just saying there's folks out there today who have created large followings making the claim that they are Jesus Christ. Now take note of the, of the word Christ here in your Bibles. In my Bible, the word Christ is italicized. Is it also in yours? You see, the King James translators were honest enough to let you know that the word Christ is not in the Texas Receptus that they use, but it is implied. Okay, it's implied. But, if you remove the word Christ out of there, and you read this passage, take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am. Now, we know of someone who is going to show up and make that claim, don't we? There is a man coming who will one day make that claim. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed... The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So one of these days, there is someone who's going to come and claim, I am the anointed. So the word Christ in italicized does no damage to this text. It, it, it's, it's correct. They were absolutely correct. Because there is coming someone who is going to make that claim. There is someone coming who will make that claim. And the warning is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. We got folks out there right now who are performing miracles and wonders and signs and they have a huge following. Don't be deceived. Deceived means to be carried away into error, to be led away from the truth into a lie. So one of the things that we're looking for, one of the things we need to keep our eyeballs peeled for is that there's going to be a proliferation of false teachers, false prophets, men making these high claims about themselves that will begin to draw men away from Christ unto themselves. A great falling away. A great falling away. They're going to come preaching their brand of the gospel. And why is that? Because the people during this time are going to have itching ears. This is the stuff they want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. It's true for the Jews during the Great Tribulation because they're going to have this man show up and claim to be God. There's going to be false prophets during the Great Tribulation to counter what the 144,000 are preaching. And it's true for us today. 
Paul warns, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. More and more as the end of the dispensation of grace or the church age comes to a close, you're going to find that um, the professing church will abandon sound doctrine for vain philosophy, traditions of men, science falsely so-called. They'll depart from the used to be called cardinal doctrines or the fundamentals of the faith. And they'll start adopting a new doctrine, a new revelation, a new insight that belongs to the more educated and the more advanced spiritually. It's there. It's going on right now. It's going on right now. Paul warned about these types in Acts 20.28. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. We're living in that age of ravening wolves today. The truth will be distorted in, in order to advance another truth. And many will be turned away. Many will be turned away. You ever seen this bumper sticker? Yeah. Yeah. Where it spells coexist. I've seen others where they even fit in Hindu symbols and other, other religious symbols. Yeah, well that, that'll be the general religious attitude of the world a more encompassing a more embracing religious mindset I mean we're already seeing the Pope speak to Muslim leaders and I've even read of good solid Baptist preachers now talking to uh, Catholic leaders how can they come together in one faith trying to work out their differences this, this kind of thing will become more and more prolific. And among the, the true believers, uh, the ones who hold to the word of God, I think you're going to see more contention and more fracture and more division among professing believers as they agree to disagree. <laughs> and as the true believers are arguing over minor points or splitting hairs, Men's souls will perish as people fall away from Christ in order to receive the Antichrist. So there's going to be a religious attitude worldwide that's going to impact the souls of men. Then, then the second thing that Jesus talks about is a social and political or political and social condition of these times. He says in verse 9, But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, he says, Be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I think the word commotions is the key word here. Commotions. 
that uh, lead up to to the end here that's getting closer and closer that describes the social and political economic condition of the of the earth as it draws near to this time there's going to be more and more global instability uh, more and more governmental disorders more and more social upheavals there'll be saber rattling and great anxiety and uncertainty and insecurity among the inhabitants of the earth kind of like today kind of like today um you're going to have governments who's going to seek to resolve issues and then you're going to have governments that's going to seek to add to the issues there's going to be instability there's going to be disorder and chaos and confusion and of course all of this is going to lead to uh, conflicts of nations as they seek to impose their will upon other nations more and more terrorism, more and more riots and lawlessness and and just a, a general disorder will become prevalent across the earth as people begin to panic and attempt to try to take matters into their own hands you're going to start seeing once stable societies experience upheavals I kind of saw a prelude to this in, uh, in this pandemic didn't we uh, governments struggling to cope Italy and European countries they all struggled to cope economies were shut down isolation became the expectation one nation blamed another nation for the cause of the trouble Uncertainty and anxiety will will rise in various governments. And if there's uncertainty and anxiety in a government, how do you think that's going to affect the citizens? Yeah, it trickles down, doesn't it? So if the government is not sure, and if the government is insecure, and if the government is shaky, so will be the citizens that they, they govern. You know what amazed me? was how quickly everything escalated how soon it it just seemed to go out of control with misinformation poor management being politicized to gain advantage it just amazed me how quickly things turned on a dime you know after what I've witnessed here you know I used to think how in the world is the Antichrist going to get all this put together how's he going to I'm not surprised anymore. I kind of got a prelude to to maybe what that time is going to be like. And, um, you know, when the world is all upside down and topsy-turvy, they're going to be ready for someone who claims to have the answers, who claims to preach peace and claims to be able to put things back together. Paul Spock, a Belgium diplomat, who was the first president of the United Nations, made a speech uh, to NATO and to the European Common Market. And he says, we do, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the morass into which we are sinking. He says, send us such a man, be he God or the devil, and we will receive him. 
and we will receive him. It's what's happening, guys. It's what's happening. One day, (laughs) they're going to have that man. One day, they're going to have that man. And then the other condition is environmental. So we got religious, political, social, and environmental. That pretty much covers everything. He says in verse 11, Luke 21, And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. So, environmentally, look for an escalation of disasters. Things beyond man's ability to control or cope with. According to uh, the Chapman University Survey of American Fears, yes, there's an actual organization out there that studies that. According to them, four out of the ten top things that Americans fear are environmentally related. Four out of ten. One man said, currently the world is afflicted with what some have called a chronic fear of environmental doom. As the Earth's inhabitants are being told about the dire consequences of climate change. Now, I'm not here to debate climate change. Uh, If you want to read a good article on it, there's a gal by the name of Holly Fretwell, who's the vice president of um, Property and Environmental Research Center. You can get on their PERC website and you can read it. It's a good article that talks about uh, this kind of thing. But yet as the time draws near, we're going to see more and more environmental occurrences, environmental disasters, uh, large-scale things uh, that will cause famines and pestilence that will shake the major population centers on this planet. That's one of the things that Jesus says is coming. And we're kind of seeing that stuff now. We're kind of seeing that, that stuff now. And Jesus, in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, 8, he calls this the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. The word sorrow speaks of intolerable anguish. And the Jewish rabbis taught that prior to the Lord's, the Messiah's coming, there's going to be a time of great travail, a time of great disaster, just before Jesus comes. The same word sorrows is is used by Paul, but it's translated as travail. Travail. First Thessalonians five three, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. There'll be a time of great travail, like a woman in childbirth, giving with all the contractions. 
And Paul refers to the time known as the day of the Lord. And Jeremiah gives us a definition of what this day is all about. In Jeremiah 46.10 he says, For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries, and the sword shall devour. So it's a day of vengeance. It's a day of the sword sword of God's justice. It's a day that God deals with his adversaries. That's what the day of the Lord is. It's, It's a day of judgment. Prior to this day that Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he talks about the rapture of the church. Okay? I believe we will see a prelude to this time, but before it kicks in hot and heavy, I believe Jesus is going to come and take his bride home to be with him. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4, after Paul talks about this day of the Lord and these people shall not escape, he says, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. That's, that's the exhortation to us. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath... But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. We're going to see the prelude, the warming up to these times. But before this beginning of sorrows kicks in full, the church will be raptured. Because we're not accounted to wrath. And that's what the day of the Lord is all about. It's about God's wrath upon a rebellious, Christ-rejecting world. So what Jesus is speaking about here are the contractions of a religious world, a rebellious world, as it begins to give birth to the fruit of its sin and its rebellion. That's what it is. And so Jesus is saying... There's coming a time when things are going to spiral out of control religiously, politically, socially, and environmentally. And it will be a time when mankind will gladly welcome a false Christ, just as he warned. And that false Christ, of course, will be the Antichrist. Now what is the point of all this? It's really quite simple. Man is not in control. That's really what it is. Man is not in control. Man has never been in control. Religion, for uh, Romans 121, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. You see, the religion of man is to create God in his own image. 
right? A God who is moral like man. A God who can be tailor-made to fit man's own ideas and man's own particular philosophy and man's own agenda. As long as it's not the God of the Bible, they're okay with that. In essence, to proclaim man as God. I'm my own authority. I'm only accountable to myself. That type of thing. Then you have self-governance, the right to rule self. That's the Laodicean church age, the rights of the people. 1 Corinthians 15.32, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. That's basically the philosophy of fallen man. It's the pursuit of happiness. Fallen man believes that they can govern one's own life and be successful in life without God's help. Thank you very much. And then environment. Ecclesiastes 8.16 When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun because though a man labor to seek it out yet he shall not find it yea farther though a wise man think to know it yet shall he not be able to find it see man can study his environment they can take it apart they can examine it in its various pieces but he has no real control over the environment why is that? because he's not the creator because he's not the creator In 1996, uh, Warren Wearsby, who recently passed away, uh, in his commentary in the book of Joel wrote, and I thought this was interesting. He says, God didn't have to send great battalions to Judah to bring the people to their knees. All he needed was a swarm of little insects, and they did the job. Sometimes God uses bacteria or viruses so tiny that you need a special microscope to see them. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth. He is the Almighty, and none can stay his powerful hand. And what I think is interesting is he said this back in 1996 about the bacteria and the viruses. A virus turned this world upside down. Hand of God. Man is not in control. And the lesson for man to learn is simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You know, a powerful monarch in the past found that out. In Daniel 4.2 he says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. That's the lesson that mankind needs to learn. Jesus Christ is Lord. You either confess him today as Lord, or you will confess him as Lord later on. It's best to confess him now as Lord. So what's the application for us? I've got... 
five minutes to preach 25 minutes worth of material. Well, Jesus himself said it. Right here. Be not terrified. Verse 9. Be not terrified. This is the opposite of what Jesus is, is going to say about those folks living through this time. In verse 26, he says, Men's hearts failing them for fear. Don't let fear master you. Don't be terrified. I did a word study on terrified. I don't have time to go through it, but there's two things about the word terrified. One, it causes one to fall away from something they once believed was safe and secure. Okay? It causes one to fall away from something or someone that they thought was safe and secure. It also means to cause one to panic, to flee, to hide from danger. One of the biggest tools in Satan's toolbox is fear. And what he will try to do is he will try to get you to fear so he can control you and master you and manipulate you. And what he wants to do, he he wants to drive you from the fear of the Lord wherein there is confidence and safety and security. He wants to drive you from the fear of the Lord so he can drive you into fear and panic and being terrified because then he can control you and manipulate you and master you. And then to cause one to flee or hide or run away. What he doesn't want is for a Christian who trusts in his God to preach the gospel during troublous times. He doesn't want somebody out there shouting the truth when he's trying to set up his own truths. He doesn't want someone out there trying to save souls as everybody else is socially and politically in unrest. And he doesn't want a Christian to create a secure environment when the physical environment is falling apart. So he says, be not terrified. And his admonition to us is to watch and pray. You remember the disciples in the garden when Jesus was arrested? What did they do? They ran, didn't they? They ran. And I think a part of the reason why they ran was because they didn't heed what Jesus said to them. In Luke twenty-two forty, he says, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. You know, so often God's people are unprepared for such times because they have failed to, pr- to pray in preparation for such times. That's what he means by watch and pray. We're seeing this stuff happening. Are we praying to be the people God needs us to be while these things are going on? Or are we letting fear 
master us and control us? Are we going to God in prayer, casting all our care upon him? Or are we being fearful as we watch these events take place? Are we praying to prepare our hearts for what's coming before us? Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. We need to pray for that sound mind while everybody else is losing theirs. We need to pray for love while everybody else is ratting everybody else about not wearing a mask or this or that. There's a lot of accusation going along around now. And we need that power. Not our power, but his power. His power. Jesus himself said, be not terrified. You know what that tells me? He's saying to me, Jeff, I'm still in control. And you are always safe with me. You believe that? I hope so. Lord God in heaven, we thank you, Father, for your word and how it tells us of these times. Father, help us not to be fearful, but be prepared. Uh, Help us, Lord God, to fear you and not fear the circumstances or the situations or the what might be's or what could be's. But help us, Father, to be strong in our faith in you. Help us to prepare our hearts as we see you prepare the world for the beginning of sorrows. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.